I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and irregular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts, an irregular warfare podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of irregular warfare. Today, I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Welcome to episode four of the Chasing Ghosts podcast. The title of today's episode will be The Impossibility of Successful Western Counterinsurgency. I wanted to thank all my new listeners. I wanted to thank all my continuing listeners and remind everybody that if you have questions or comments, you can direct them to cgpodcast at pm.me. That's cgpodcast at pm.me. Would love to hear from you. So, I am a heretic in the church of irregular warfare and counterinsurgency. As I've told people in previous episodes, I happen to be a single-digit percentage of the counterinsurgency irregular warfare milieu who are very skeptical of the utility, effectiveness, efficiency, and efficacy of conducting this kind of warfare from a Western perspective. So I'd like to start off with some quotes, if I may. Sun Tzu, Art of War. It reads, quote, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. So what am I trying to do today? I'm going to tell you. Clarity of purpose is an essential precondition to engagement. Winning is achieving your purpose, and you can't achieve your purpose if you don't know what it is. In the absence of clear and practical strategic goals, there is little visible reason to engage. The reason I say that is because there's so much to the history of irregular warfare that tells us that things weren't conducted in quite the way they should have been, Folks tended to be overly optimistic. Governments and institutions and militaries tended to think that they could go in, conduct their operations, and be finished without regard to what we call branches and sequels, which are the contingencies that occur in warfare, without regard to unintended consequences, without regard to second and third order effects, and without even putting these escapes and variations into the initial concepts and planning of conducting these kind of operations. And here's what I want to say most of all. In these conflicts that have ranged over centuries, but we're concentrating for the most part in this podcast in the 19th, 20th, and 21st century, nobody wins in the end. Not the protagonist, not the antagonist, not the insurgents, not the counterinsurgents. In the end, everybody is worse off when the West engage in these kind of things. Now, why do I rely so much on history? Because I think history provides a bloodless practicum for policymakers and practitioners and scholars alike. Irregular warfare and its state response and counterinsurgency has, in my opinion, yielded a rich tapestry of unmitigated disaster and failure with few exceptions in the Western world. I'm still looking for some of those ex exceptions, and we will entertain that in a future episode. 
And I want to emphasize again and again and again, if I could pound on a table, I would do this. Everybody holds up the United Kingdom and the British as the be-all and end-all of effective insurgency and counterinsurgency. I am here to tell you they are not who they make themselves out to be. And again, in future episodes, we will discuss that very thing. British success, in my mind, is a chimera. You look at Malaya, you look at Kenya, you look at Palestine, you look at Cyprus, you look at Northern Ireland, which we entertained in the last episode when we talked about Michael Collins and the liberation of Ireland from the British yoke in 1922. This exposure of coin failure that I intend to do now and in the future in this podcast, both as a doctrine and in practice, as well as the national hubris and military careerism that lurks at its core, it's always going to end in failure, and I will stand up to any cross-examination where somebody questions that very notion. I am not alone in these sentiments. I stand on the shoulders of giants. To include the first person who sent me on this journey was the author Douglas Porch, who wrote Counterinsurgency, Exposing the Myths of the New Way of War, and others, such as The Anatomy of Failure, Why America Loses Every War It Starts by Harlan Ullman, my former colleague and acquaintance, General Daniel P. Bolger, who served with me in the 101st Airborne Division, and I had the occasion to meet with him briefly in Afghanistan when I served over there. He wrote Why We Lost, a General's Inside Account of the Iraq and Afghanistan Wars, John Gentile, and others. There are a variety of folks out there who are coming out and saying, you know, in irregular warfare, especially in counterinsurgency in the West, the emperor has no clothes. This is not a popular stance. This is not going to get myself nor the gentleman that I mentioned invitations to write for Small Wars Journal or go to a Small Wars Journal conference or any conferences that enjoy this kind of notion that we can succeed in this warfare. You know, Douglas Porch notes that the Army and Marine Corps 2006 Field Manual 3-24 on counterinsurgency, penned primarily by General Petraeus, is really nothing more than counterfeit dogma anchored in bogus history, end of quote. Pretty powerful medicine there. And in my mind, as I mentioned, the emperor has no clothes. The strategic aspects of coin lacking context isn't aligned properly with the others. It doesn't matter how good your tactics and leadership are, you're going to lose. So either people are reading the history wrong or what really worked is old-fashioned force-on-force fight. There is no spoon here. The God's eye view doesn't take into account the on-the-ground reality for indigenous populations. I'm always fond of the character in the first Jurassic Park movie with Jeff Goldblum, where he says, nature finds a way. And a watchword for me, a phrase as it were, is that indigenous populations will find a way in, through, or around whatever policy is imposed on them by a foreign invader. You know, and, 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 and why should this matter in the first place? Why should we be having this discussion because we have spent literally trillions of dollars and thousands of people have been killed on both sides 
both Western armies, Western NGOs, Western Department of State employees, Western coalition employees, Western coalition fighters, not to mention the uneven balance of the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of indigenous population members, men, women, and children, who have suffered at the hands of these ill-conceived and poorly executed demonstration projects in nation building. And why does it matter now when we're shifting to fighting near-peer and peer competitors across the planet, primarily those who wish to contest the West's suzerainty, suzerainty and supremacy throughout the globe? What we find is that you can do everything you wish to do to wish away the irregular warfare aspects of conventional warfare when you decide to take on full spectrum and what's referred to as unified land operations fights. But that irregular conflict is here to stay. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, when it comes to irregular warfare, there is no sequence where, well, this has to happen before the conventional fight occurs, and this can't happen married or in concert with the conventional fight. These irregular warfare operations, I would, I would suggest that when one examines military history, you will always find this flavor, no matter how large or small, in any conflict that you examine. Let's take the Napoleonic conflict, for instance, at the turn of the 19th century. Because of what Napoleon referred to as the Spanish ulcer, which was Spanish irregulars and partisans who harried and raided and caused all kinds of mischief and mayhem to his lines of communication and supplies, it probably went a very large way to Napoleon ultimately losing his fight on the continent in 1814 and 1815. So let's get down to brass tacks. Let's look at joint publication 3-24, Counterinsurgency, and it, it's been updated on the 25th of April, 2018. Validation occurred on the 30th of April, 2021, from the following quote. Quote, Insurgency is the organized use of subversion and violence to seize, nullify, or challenge political control of a region. An insurgency is a form of intrastate conflict. Notice intra, not inter. Intrastate conflict and counterinsurgency is used to counter it. The joint force commander should understand insurgencies increasingly present threats to the joint force that are increasingly transregional, multi-domain, and multifunctional. End of quote. The Oxford English Dictionary, 2020 defines counterinsurgency as any military or political action taken against the activities of guerrillas or revolutionaries and can be considered war by a state against a non-state adversary. And finally, NATO Doctrine, dated 2017, defines counterinsurgency as comprehensive civilian and military efforts made to defeat an insurgency and to address any core grievances. Insurgents seek to compel or coerce political change on those in power often through the use or threat of force by irregular forces, groups, or individuals. Counterinsurgents must not only develop short-term solutions to provide security for the targeted population and change disruptive behaviors, they must also determine the sources of the unrest and dissatisfaction fueling the insurgency. Counterinsurgents conduct long-term operations to eliminate those sources of unrest. This may require improving governance, developing the economy, or restoring essential services. And counterinsurgency 
is a generic reference in most NATO curricula. Look, I, I, I am a severe skeptic of, of these notions because what you see with these three definitional constructs is nicely worded aphorisms and descriptors that try to frame and embrace just what they're trying to do. But here's what they do in the end. Whether you use it as a deep state descriptor, an invasion descriptor, or some kind of uh, occupation force modality, a huge Death Star from America or a coalition of American and or NATO forces, or if we go back in history, it could be the French, the British, the Belgians, and the Portuguese in Africa, among other major players there. They park these state Death Stars above these countries, impose usually culturally illiterate assumptions and frameworks on these countries, and wonder why they have literally removed the pen from a grenade, put it in their pants, it explodes, and they can't explain why what they do has gone awry and isn't working over the long term. Now, I had mentioned Ullman, I had mentioned Bolger, I had mentioned Porch and Gentile and some of my others. Martin Van Crevel, one of my favorite military historians of all time, a guy who has a very comprehensive and almost Renaissance man approach to military history and discussion of military affairs and such. He has a quote here that I think is very germane to the discussion we're having today. Quote, the first and absolutely indispensable thing to do is throw overboard 99% of the literature on counterinsurgency, counter-guerrilla, counter-terrorism, and the like. Since most of it was written by the losing side, it is of little value, end of quote. Martin Van Crevel. By the way, Martin Van Crevel does an absolutely magisterial treatment of the German and American officer corps in a book called Fighting Power to give you an idea of just how broad his frame of reference is when he examines historical matters. And he finds the American officership very wanting and the German officership not so wanting. It's a great examination. You can disagree with it because remember that cross-examination is the engine of truth. So recently we left Afghanistan in August of last year. We left in an ignoble fashion, and we left in a fashion that doesn't quite bear up to the mystique, mystery, and braggadocio of the American enterprise when it comes to fighting wars. But then again, since 1940, since 1945, as Harlan Ullman illustrates in Anatomy of Failure why America loses every war it starts, since 1945, you would be hard-pressed to find an American conflict, especially large ones, that we've won. Now, one can say, well, we won Grenada. Maybe. One could say, well, we won Iraq in 1991. And I would grant you that conditionally, but I would also tell you that what happened in Iraq in 1991 during Desert Storm was one of many seedbeds at the time that set into train everything that would occur the following 10 years, culminating in the 2003 invasion of Iraq and culminating, of course, throughout fits and starts in our other awful career in Iraq as opposed to Afghanistan that 
We never got it right in this case, the United States and its NATO allies never got it right. Struggling every year, as every year in both countries, a new general officer stands athwart that great country, puts his hands on his hips and says, I've got this. And he doesn't have a thing because we didn't manage to wrap our heads around how to conduct counterinsurgency. I am occasionally asked, how does one conduct an effective counterinsurgency? And I'm sorry to disappoint the audience, and I'm sure to disappoint the broader audience listening to this, especially those who count themselves among the coindonistas, that the most effective way to win a counterinsurgency is not to start it in the first place. The historical evidence doesn't bode well for this alleged success of Western counterinsurgency. You'll note that the title of this podcast today is The Impossibility of Successful Western Counterinsurgency, and I stand by that notion. Despite what everybody that I have mentioned before has done in Africa and the Middle East, planet-wide from a Western perspective, it simply doesn't work. I would point out a very interesting discussion in an article by Lorenzo Zambernardi called Counterinsurgency's Impossible Trilemma. But before I discuss that, I want to briefly take us to Afghanistan. And I want to talk about one of my what's considered otter notions, which is this. No man under the age of 30, I'll call 25 possibly, but no man under the age of 30 should be conducting any kind of counterinsurgency effort. And you'll ask yourself, well, why is that? For a variety of reasons, maturity is a vital construct in the proper execution of these kind of operations if a country decides to inadvisedly embark on these kind of things. At an undisclosed location in Afghanistan with an undisclosed unit, a 20-year-old young man thought it would be amusing in the village that he was presently conducting operations in to take a Gatorade bottle, fill it with urine, and hand it out to children in the village. One can imagine what the result of this was. A parent, whether in an Islamic village in Afghanistan or in a suburb in Philadelphia, Phoenix, or some other place in America or even Europe, would be rather displeased by that. But the dynamic that makes it even worse in this is, number one, it's an invasion. Number two, it's an occupation. Number three, it is conducted by people who don't happen to be religious confrères with the indigenous population itself. Number four, the parenting that I had mentioned and the umbrage that one would have at seeing one's child exposed to that kind of thing. But it also does another thing, and that's this. In Western suburbia, even European countries, they're very atomistic. There's not one, two, there's not two, three, four generations living under one roof, but that is the case in these countries. These are countries, especially in the Middle East, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and the Horn of Africa, in which oral tradition tends to be a lot more sophisticated and used in much more of a frequent way than it's used in the West because the West tends to be, despite its looming subliteracy, a reading population, even though we do have a very robust 
vocal and oral tradition in the West, it doesn't match that of how things are passed on in the Middle East. And in the Middle East, when you match up that oral tradition with the cultural and clan and blood memory that villages have, that have lived together for generations, if not hundreds of years, when that young child is doing that, they have aunts, uncles, brothers, and sisters, many, and they have generations that are connected to them in villages that don't move around the country that have been with each other, as I mentioned, for years and years. And in Islamic religious faith, they have very long memories, and these memories are part of an honor culture. And in this honor culture, unless a slight, as in the urine in a Gatorade bottle, is remedied, men are less than men. So that has set into train a rippling effect from this practical joke conducted by a Western soldier, something that can't be undone in years, if not generations. Which brings us to something I'd like to talk about briefly, which is Lorenzo Zambernardi's impossible trilemma of counterinsurgency. Published in the Washington Quarterly, July of 2010, that trilemma is force protection. Think of a triangle. Force protection at the top, at the left leg, distinguished combatants from non-combatants, at the right leg, physical destruction of insurgents. Zambernardi articulates a notion that I've always had, and he articula articulates it in a more empirical fashion. My notion is that you can't maim and kill women and children in Western traditional counterinsurgencies. You can't do that often enough not to stiffen the resistance to steal the spine of insurgents and insurgencies that occur. I've mentioned this in previous podcasts. When it comes to Afghanistan and Iraq, there aren't monolithic insurgencies. There are hundreds of insurgencies in Afghanistan. There are dozens of insurgencies in Iraq. These hundreds of insurgencies, they have casual relationships. Sometimes they communicate with one another. Even lesser times, they coordinate with one another. But what they do have in common is that they are a certain maybe single-digit, possibly double-digit percentage of that population that will never yield to an invasion and an occupation by external forces in their country. I want to quote Zambernardi in the article because he puts an empirical edge to my notion that I think is better said than me. Quote, We currently live in an epoch where there is often a tension between political ends and military means which seems to have reduced the political effectiveness of the Western use of force in those contexts. If war as an instrument of foreign policy has become a less politically effective means, then its use should be drastically reconsidered. In a world where the most important goals of states are political, and in which, it, as Rupert Smith correctly notes, military conflicts are fought for the people, it is not the development of new high-tech weapons and novel military strategies that secure victor, victory. It is instead the political capacity of accepting and tolerating human costs, which is the key to winning these wars. The impossible trilemma that I just discussed explains that to protect populations, which is necessary to defeat insurgencies and to physically defeat an insurgency, forces must be sacrificed, risking the loss of domestic political support. Over the next few months, 
This is likely to become one of the most important challenges for the Obama administration. End of quote. Remember that this was written in 2010, and this was also written when there was a surge that was occurring in both Iraq and Afghanistan from the same president who on the campaign trail in 2007 said that not only would he be getting us out of Afghanistan, but would also be getting us out of Iraq, but proves over the eight-year course of the Obama administration, not only does he maintain this Pyrrhic victory and this tilting at the counterinsurgency windmills in Afghanistan and Iraq, but also ignites a new conflict in Syria, ignites a new conflict in Libya, and ignites a new conflict in the Horn of Africa. And in the last year of the Obama administration, lobs 26,000 precision-guided munitions at Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. As you will discover throughout the course of this podcast series, as I conduct it over the next year and the year after that, I hope, I am an equal opportunity offender when it comes to both political parties because I think that they are both militarily, historically, and practically illiterate in the application of military force overseas. The foreign policy establishment that we have in the United States can't seem to do the first thing that we talked about during the uh, beginning of this podcast, which is extrapolating second and third order effects of very bad policymaking. Here's what we have to come to grips with. When one strips away all the small wars and counterinsurgency and even in a larger construct, irregular warfare mandates definitional constructs and things that occur in the West. When you strip all of it away, what you find is it's a neo-colonial framework. It's a gambit that seeks to extend the influence of a given physical state, in this case the United States or NATO and the uh, European allies that take themselves into third world and developing countries historically over the 20th and 21st century. There's all kinds of examples of this. Impose themselves, insinuate themselves into it, and think that they can take their first world constructs, put them and template them over these countries, and all of a sudden, out of the rubble or third world or developing world nation state, a new first world state emerges in the new democratic framework or republican framework, and I use small r, lowercase, small r, small, small d, uh, capitalist mixed economies, Mussolini-style state corporatism, whatever the notion is that we're going to impose on that indigenous population in their settings is thing that it, it's, it's almost dream-weaving on the part of the states in the West where they think that they can impose these kind of things on peoples who want no part of it. Not to mention a total lack of respect, if not even apprehension, of the religious frameworks that inform these countries. For instance, and we will cover this in a future episode, there has been a gender equality notion that's been carried by both the Europeans and the Americans into these countries, where they're trying to directly compete and contend with religious frameworks that have been there for hundreds of years in which they cause through rippling effects all kinds of unintended consequences for women in these countries, things like that. We may disagree anthropologically and morally with the way people are treated 
whether they're men, women, or children in these countries, but if we're going in there with an eye to wholly subjugate and reduce and then substitute Western notions of how nations are to conduct themselves, that is fraught with peril. That is fraught with all kinds of problems. And you'll find that apart from the martial and military failures that have been conducted during these counterinsurgency campaigns historically and contemporaneously, you have the nation-building notions, you have all of these ideas. Well, we'll go in there and we'll show them the proper way to do things. This is a Western conceit, and it's a dangerous conceit. And by the way, it's a conceit that no first world nation on planet Earth would tolerate by an invasion or occupation force coming into their country and trying to imbue and influence and instantiate a completely alien combine of how that nation should conduct itself from an outsider. Americans wouldn't tolerate that, nor would Europeans. So not only are there manifestations through the physical violence that's imposed by this, not only are there manifestations through this notion and conceit that we're going to go into a nation state, the U.S., the Europeans, whoever the malefactors may be conducting the counterinsurgency, they're going to make that country anew. They're going to reduce it to whatever it has to be reduced to. They're going to make it the sum of the parts of the West and the Western conceit that comes in there and says, you know, this is the way that nation state is going to be. So what we'd like you to do is reconstruct it. There's also the notion of corruption. There are so many things to talk about when it comes to why we don't do counterinsurgency well, effectively, or as my thesis would inform you, I consider it an impossibility. There's these notions of corruption, where in the country, whether we go through there because we think that the political germination of the ruling class is illegitimate, or we contend that the corruption is so deep and so wide that the West has to go in there to wrest control from those who run the country indigenously and be run on more, less corrupt institutional standards by Western regard. Corruption is part of every political process, and I stand by that notion. There is no way anybody can convince me that corruption doesn't occur on every political gov- in every political government on the face of the earth, now and forever going back to throughout all recorded history. What they call corruption over there, which is the notion of, well, stuff goes missing, stuff goes into pockets, stuff is used for influence, whatever the case may be. When I look at the West, what I discover is that most of the corruption that we accuse them of, it's simply institutionalized here. For instance, you will find the West, when it comes to the franchise, the most effective form of voting isn't at the ballot box, it's lobbying. What you'll find in these countries is a, for instance, that I discovered once I was in, a, in Kabul, Afghanistan, on one of my jobs. We had come across the fact that when fuel was delivered to the battalions of the brigades, within five days of a 30-day fuel delivery cycle, all the fuel was gone. Well, what happened? Well, of course, those in command those who were skimming off the paychecks of their enlisted guys 
or even their junior officers, the commanders and such, they were selling the fuel on the black market. Of course they were. This is what happens. This is what's encouraged. Quite literally, in all human affairs, you have to pick a side. You have to play favorites. You have to conduct influence operations that say who wins and who doesn't. Because the way the West views counterinsurgency, as they view so much foreign policy, is a zero-sum affair, where not all boats can float to the, um, to the surface or float together. You've got to take some and sink them, and some and not sink them, and some and fill them with wealth that doesn't cause them to sink, but causes them to have greater influence. So we've covered a broad gamut here of why I think the West is incapable of conducting counterinsurgency. We can stop right here and we can ask ourselves, well, historically, has the West ever conducted a successful counterinsurgency? We're going to talk about Plan Columbia, which some hold to be, in a future episode, which some hold to be an exemplar of that kind of success, coupled to the drug war, no less. When I look at the entire body of counterinsurgency, whether conducted by the Portuguese in Africa, the Belgians in Africa, the French in Africa and Asia, and um, Indochina and such. And when you look at all of them, you would be hard-pressed to find a successful counterinsurgency conducted in the West since the 19th century that stuck, that achieved what it sought to do. For instance, the British may say, well, in Yemen, we did a good job, and in Oman, we did a good job. Not so much when you look at it. As a matter of fact, and I forget the author, he wrote a book with the very uh, compelling title of Barbed Wire Empire, talking about the British. It was the British, even prior to what the Germans did in 1904 in German Southwest Africa, who pioneered the use of concentration camps at the end of the 19th century, starting with the Boer War, but also continuing in their Middle Eastern adventures and even some of their Indian adventures, where they would take vast swaths of a population, confine them within fenced lines or, in the case of that author, barbed wire enterprises to keep them from being influenced or providing succor and support to insurgents within the country. All this did, of course, was rippling with second and third order effects that were mostly negative, as proved by Gandhi in the early 20th century in what would be wrested as the largest British protectorate, India, by 1948, is gone from the empire. And the British, as I mentioned in a previous episode, are lording after 1948 over a variety of rocks from Ascension to Pitcairn to the Falkland Islands. And that's about the extent of the empire they have left after their imperial career. So I think I've discussed in a previous episode... Gilo Pantacorvo's cinematic 1966 interpretation of the Battle of Algiers. I highly recommend it. It's a great film. Uh, you may disagree with some of its biases and such, but then again, biases are part of human nature, and there's no such thing as objectivity. That is my conceit. Well, there's a French author, Alexis Genie. He qualifies French counterinsurgency success in Algiers in 1957. In novelistic but accurate fashion, as a tactical victory bought at exorbitant human and strategic costs. Quote, we remained masters of a devastated city, emptied of men whom we could talk to, 
haunted by electrocuted phantoms, a town where hatred, atrocious pain, and generalized fear reigned. The solution that we discovered showed this very recognizable aspect of French genius. Generals Massou and Salan applied their principles to the letter. Draw up list, analyze the, analyze the situation to create disasters. End of quote. My God, it seems to me that that could be used to describe every American enterprise and counterinsurgency that has been conducted since 2001. It's very descriptive. It is rather novelistic, but very accurate. When you look at French behavior in Algeria and you look at French behavior in Indochina, it was just awful. And one thing that really surprises me about French behavior in Indochina and Algeria is twofold. Number one, during the occupation of France by the Germans for nearly six years, starting in 1940, ending in 1945, 1944-45, with the almost complete American liberation of France by 1945 that had been accomplished by the American and Western allies in the uh, in World War II, what you had was you had almost six years to really hone through the Maquis and the French underground and the French resistance the notion of how to conduct an insurgency against an occupier. All of a sudden, after 1945, the French assume their place in the world once again. They seek to wrest their colonies back in Indochina from the Japanese. They seek to maintain their colonies in northern Africa, most, uh, most of all their largest colony, which is Algeria, outside of metropolitan France. They've been there since 1840 with the Pétainois. What you discover is that they conduct themselves as counterinsurgents as if they don't know how insurgents behave, which is astonishing to me. The kind of torture, wholesale slaughter, misinformed um, methodologies of enforcing policy in Algeria and such. That quote that I just read to you is from 1957. What's curious is that in 1958, all of a sudden, Algeria goes dark. And the FLN, which was the primary insurgent that they were fighting during that time after World War II, and by the way, they had been fighting them for the longest time, even during World War II and before. What, what you discover is that they go dark, but by 1962, there are less than a three-figure population of French metropolitan whites remaining in Algeria because the FLN prevails. Now, how does it prevail? It prevails in a number of ways, but it prevails in a very important way. It starts to incentivize, or at least encourage, the worse elements of French martial and civilian culture to start to engage in atrocities. And as, a, as I had mentioned before, you cannot maim and kill women and children. In this case, you cannot maim and kill men, women, and children fast enough not to stiffen the resistance that would emerge in these countries that they're conducting the counterinsurgency in. Hence, the French pay the ultimate price. Of course, they would pay the ultimate price conventionally in 1956 at Dien Ben Phu, where their conventional forces are defeated by both conventional and unconventional forces in Vietnam, a.k.a. French Indochina. 
Well, I could go on for hours, but as a service to my listeners and those who would be driven mad by me talking for hours about this very thing, let's um, put a bookend on this, a future past tense. The U.S. and the West have been practicing coin ever since the nations were born from the various eradication campaigns against Aboriginal cultures in North America, to the internecine conflicts on the European continent, and to the far-flung colonial squabbles from Australia to Africa and everything in between. These conflicts, they drain treasuries, they maim and kill hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children, and they bring imperial mischief and policies abroad to the originating country. What I'm trying to say there is that whatever imperial policies are practiced abroad, no matter how gross and evil and malodorous they may be, all of that will eventually come home. I remind you that when it comes to an insurgency, there are three pillars that instantiate them. That would be legitimacy, grievances, both real and perceived, and narratives, whether they're captured by the counterinsurgent or whether the supremacy of the narrative is captured by the insurgents themselves. In the end, despite the Coindonista historiography and attendant hagiography, the military conduct of Coin in my mind, is a colossal fraud and failure. Stop the madness. So I want to leave you with a quote from Douglas Porch. And I think it's really interesting. Page 344 of Counterinsurgency, imposing, uh, Exposing the Myths of the New Way of War by Douglas Porch, which I urge everybody to get a copy of. I have used my copy so much, I have more than one, and mine is spiral-bound. I took it to Office Depot and had them take the spine off. Quote, Perhaps the most convincing refutation of the Coindonista claims, however, comes from within the military where some officers argue that coin doctrines are anchored in a mythologized history and selective memory, fail to work at an acceptable price, and erode the core skills of conventional warriors. Even in Petraeus' Afghanistan, population-centric strategies gave way to what two authors termed urban-centric strategies. In essence, the argument is that even Petraeus realized that Afghanistan was a nut too hard for coin to crack, too big, too backward, too fanaticized, with insurgent safe havens on the borders. Therefore, the coalition in Afghanistan has basically focused on controlling the main towns and ring road that circles the country. End quote. I want to insert this in there. Having lived in Kabul, Afghanistan in 2013 and parts of 2015, I can tell you that even the green zone was starting to become very unsafe over time. Quoting again from Porch, there are at least two problems with this urban-centric approach, beginning with the fact that the insurgency is concentrated in the countryside where almost 80% of the population live, not in the cities. When U.S. forces or allied forces do venture into the countryside, they build their bases outside the villages, sometimes in disadvantageous positions. Cop Keating comes to mind. Far from air support, so that the village may become a staging area for attacks that can become quite costly. A second problem is that this strategy was tried before by the Soviets in the 1980s and led only to defeat, end of quote. The defeat in the conflict that the soldiers in Afghanistan refer to as 
Afghansi, and we will cover that in a future episode. So with that, I think that I've started my case, not completely made my case, why successful prosecution of counterinsurgency is impossible by Western nations. And I would say that part of my brief in doing this podcast series and continuing on into the future is I'm going to keep putting bricks in that wall. I'm going to keep providing you with substantive and empirical reasons why anytime you hear anyone make the claim that either historically or contemporaneously, a coin can be fought and won, a counterinsurgency, they are wrongheaded, and in the end, they may simply be evil. This is Bill signing off. Future episodes in the offing. Bill out.